0: Matthew chapter 9, (coughs) verses 1 through 17, is our sermon text this morning. I just want to remind us where we've been before we look at this text together. We have been walking through Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, and in these chapters, there's a series of 10 miracles. And we've been saying that these ten miracles are all demonstrating in various ways Jesus' authority and how he uses that authority. We saw in the first part of Matthew 8, as Jesus cleansed the leper and healed the servant of the centurion, and as he healed Peter's mother-in-law, that Jesus uses his authority over the body and his authority to heal to actually bring those who are far from God near and to restore them. Especially evident in the story of the leper who was cut off from God completely because of his uncleanness. And Jesus passed his cleanness to that leper. He used his authority to do so. In Matthew chapter 8, the second part, where we saw Jesus calm a storm and we saw Jesus cast out a demon, or cast out demons from these men that were possessed, we saw that Jesus uses his authority over all of creation. To save those who are perishing. To save his disciples from perishing in the storm. And to save these demon-possessed men who Satan was trying to destroy. Jesus went in to enemy territory, to Gentile territory, and rescued these men who were perishing. He saved them. Jesus uses his authority to do that. Today, in Matthew 9, we're going to cover the first half of Matthew 9. And we're going to see that Jesus uses his authority to reshape reality. That's what I'm going with as the main point of this text. It might seem strange to you. Jesus uses his authority to reshape reality. Why this strange main point for this text? In this text, we see Jesus heal a paralytic. And he doesn't just heal the paralytic, but he heals him So that the people watching would know that he has authority to forgive sins. Because he comes up first to this paralytic and says, your sins are forgiven. And he's challenged by the scribes, by the religious leaders of the day. And then Jesus calls Matthew as a disciple to follow him. And goes to Matthew's house and has a dinner, a feast, with all kinds of lowlifes who respectable religious people wouldn't associate with. And he's challenged by the Pharisees. Why is he eating with these people that should be really despised and rejected? And Jesus tells of his mission to come and to call sinners, not those who are righteous. These all are familiar truths. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. We know that. If you've been in church any amount of time, you've heard this. This is core and central. We know that Jesus' mission was to come for those who are sinners in need of a Savior. This is nothing big, nothing surprising. These truths, though, because they are so familiar, are easily taken for granted. We can think Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Well, of course he does. Rather than having our minds blown by that reality... We can just think, well, yeah, of course, it's common sense. However, we see in this text, three confrontations happen as Jesus walks out these things that seem common sense to us. Jesus says your sins are forgiven and there's a confrontation. Jesus dines with sinners and there's a confrontation. Jesus has his disciples feast instead of fasting, and there's a confrontation. And these confrontations happen because these things aren't just common sense. They aren't just, oh yeah, of course. These things are radically reshaping the reality of Jesus' day. We easily, because these things are so near to us and so dear to us and so familiar to us, we easily take these things for granted and fail to grasp how massively transformed reality is by the fact that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. When we forget or fail to grasp how transformative these things are, then we fail to live accordingly. Because we live according to what we believe to be true. And when we, when we don't grasp the depth of these realities... And we take them as just common sense, everyday things. We take them for granted. We end up living functionally as if they aren't true. Because we forget them. We don't pay attention. And so we act and think like they aren't true. We'll see this as we go through. I'll try to elaborate on that a little bit. The reality is that we must be reminded constantly of what is true and what is real. And so to help us see that today, I want to highlight by Posing the text this way, as Jesus reshapes reality. Jesus uses his authority to reshape reality. I want to highlight for us how massive of a shift this is. And help us see through these these confrontations, how Jesus was reshaping reality around him. And how he reshapes our reality. I want to help us see this. I want to help us live then by the new reality that Jesus brings. So we're going to read the text. Before we do, I want to point out to you that there's a pattern that we're going to see that reoccurs three times. This pattern is that Jesus takes some kind of radical action in line with this new reality that he's bringing. He's walking to an entirely different drumbeat than everybody else. And he takes this radical action. And then the serious religious people around him have issue with that. And they confront him on it. And then Jesus responds by explaining this new reality he's brought about. And as he does, we learn more about him and his mission. Okay, so there's this radical action. There's this confrontation. And then there's Jesus explaining what's happening. And we see that pattern three times. So watch for that as we read through the text. Let's read Matthew 9 verses 1 through 17 together. And then I will pray for our time together in the text hear the word of the Lord. Matthew 9 verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we think through this text together, as we look closely at your word, that you would help us to see the reality that is created by Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, the reality that we cannot see unless you give us eyes to see, the reality that we cannot hear of unless you give us ears to hear, the reality that we cannot believe unless you give us a heart to believe. So I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and ears and heart by your spirit as we come to this word and that we would behold Jesus and that we would be changed. Would you meet everyone in here with what is needful this morning from your word, I pray. Amen. Let's look at the first time this pattern that we mentioned appears in verses 1 through 7. The first way that Jesus reshapes reality is by forgiving sinners. Verses 1 through 7. We see his radical action in verses 1 and 2. Jesus is brought this man lying paralyzed on a bed. We know from the other Gospels that this is the same man we read about where they tore off the roof and lowered him down in. To be, with his, to be with Jesus, his friends desperately brought him to Jesus knowing that he needed the Lord. Matthew cuts out all those details though and goes right to the chase. This paralyzed man comes to Jesus and what does Jesus do for him? He doesn't heal him of his paralysis. Whatever was causing him to be bedridden, Jesus does not immediately go there. But instead, he sees through to the root problem and he says, son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. We're used to, by now, language like this. And so it doesn't strike us as so drastic. But for Jesus to pronounce forgiveness with a word was massively radical. The normal process in Jesus' day of receiving forgiveness Was to go to the temple, make the sacrifices, and have forgiveness pronounced by the priest there. For Jesus to come and just say it was totally abnormal and totally shocking to those around him. Son, your sins are forgiven. This brings up confrontation with the scribes. I want us to try to empathize with Jesus' opponents. It's easy to think of the scribes and the Pharisees and the disciples of John in this story as enemies of Jesus. We shouldn't think of them primarily as enemies of Jesus. We should think of them primarily as the ones who took religion really seriously, who wanted to faithfully follow Yahweh, who sought to be faithful to the Lord God. And so the scribes, knowing well that the scriptures say only God can forgive sins are thinking in their own hearts he's blaspheming they're trying to figure out they're reeling from what happened they're not even saying it yet but they're thinking it this is blasphemy this is not allowed this is not right mark captures this in the story when he highlights them even saying in their hearts who can forgive sins but God alone If Jesus is not who he says he is, then he is indeed blaspheming. These scribes are right that it is wrong for a human being to come up to another human being and say, take heart, your sins are forgiven and just unilaterally declare forgiveness. When we say it in our service, we're talking about it in context of Jesus Christ having pronounced forgiveness on us. I do not have the right to say that myself. You do not have the right to say that yourself. We do not have the right to claim the prerogative of God. We are not the ones who have been sinned against. Ultimately, it is gone. But the scribes fundamentally misunderstand who Jesus is. And so he responds to them. Even though he says they're thinking evil in, his, in their hearts, I think his response is still kind to them. He declares to them that he does indeed have this authority. He condemns their thoughts. This is, why are you thinking evil in your hearts, he says. In verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? But then he gives them a demonstration. He says, which is easier? Which is harder to say, excuse me. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Jesus is obviously Saying that if I just say your sins are forgiven, there's no visible evidence of that. There's nothing that you can dispute about that. It may or may not be true. But if I say rise up and walk and this person does not, you can see that clearly. And so Jesus says, so that you can know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. He turns to the paralytic and heals him. The healing was a demonstration of Jesus' authority. And the man goes home healed and forgiven, restored. And the crowds are amazed. And the scribes are shown that Jesus does indeed have this authority. This is a new thing, as the crowds point out in verse 7. When they marvel, excuse me, verse 8, they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is a new thing, and the crowds are rightly amazed by it. How should this reality affect us? What should we think about the reality that Jesus forgives sinners? I think we can learn a few things by this. One is that Jesus goes right to the root of the problem for the paralytic. Notice he does not heal him initially. His healing is in response to the need to demonstrate his authority. Or the request, I guess, to demonstrate his authority. The healing is only secondary. The true and deepest problem for the paralytic and for all of us is sin. If this is not addressed, nothing else matters. And Jesus goes right to the heart of reality. Even though it appears that the paralysis is the biggest problem, Jesus addresses the biggest problem. Sin for The paralytic and sin for us. Jesus' ability to forgive sins, his authority to forgive sins, means he can address this biggest problem for you and I. The fact that Jesus forgives with a word further demonstrates to us that it's his word itself which brings about this new reality. Many of us have no problem believing the miracle stories in the scriptures. We could believe that Jesus would heal a paralytic and that he would get up and walk. And we could believe that Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. We could believe that Jesus would calm a storm. But many of us have tremendous difficulty believing that we are indeed forgiven by Jesus solely by his word. Solely as an act of his mercy towards us. This story and other miracles is meant to cement into us the reality that this is really true. That your forgiveness is every bit as real As a paralytic getting up and walking. Or the dead rising or the blind seeing. When we don't live in this reality. We live functionally as if Jesus forgiveness isn't real. Then we think thoughts like. Maybe I believe Jesus forgives. But he just he can't forgive me. Because I can't forgive myself. Or Or if Jesus really knew everything about me. He wouldn't forgive it. We're racked with guilt over what we've done. Shame keeps us in darkness and keeps us trying to hide our sin. We end up treating others harshly because we feel harshly towards ourselves. We end up striving to do some kind of good work that will make up for the fact that we don't believe we have been forgiven. We become dependent on our emotional stability. In other words, if we feel good about ourselves and we feel forgiven, then we're doing well. And if we don't feel forgiven, then we're doing terrible. None of this is really in line with the reality that is created by God's word. The fact that Jesus has authority to forgive sins changes everything. It means that when God pronounces, for example, through his word in John chapter 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life that's true that's true as true as you are sitting in this room that is true as true and as real as the person sitting next to you because god's word creates this reality in john 20 John writes these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The reality is that if you believe you do indeed have life because Jesus himself is able to forgive sins. He has authority to forgive sins. He has authority to make you a new creation. Therefore, we ought to take heart that he does indeed bring forgiveness. Just like to the paralytic, he said, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. When he speaks into your life through his word, and you experience the forgiveness that only Jesus can provide, the reality is that you can take heart. You don't have to keep wondering whether these things are real and true or some kind of figment of your imagination. This is reality breaking through. That's what Jesus' authority to forgive teaches us. The second way Jesus reshapes reality with his authority is by calling sinners into fellowship with him. Jesus reshapes reality by fellowshipping with sinners. We see this in verses 8 to 13. 9 to 13, excuse me. Verse 9, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Calling Matthew as a tax collector to follow him was a crazy thing. Radical action. We have a tough time empathizing with how hated tax collectors were in that day. Tax collectors were typically Jews employed by the Romans. So native people assisting the occupying, oppressing army. That's a strike against them right there. And then the way they made their money was by collecting the required taxes and then deciding how much additional they were going to require and extort from their fellow Jews. These guys were enemies, traitors, corrupt, sinners to the core. And Jesus comes up to Matthew and says, follow me. And he does. If this isn't radical enough though, then Jesus... After calling Matthew to follow him, goes and dines with him. Verse 10, as Jesus reclined at table in the house. This is Matthew's house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew, as a tax collector, would have been despised by any respectable Jew. So guess who his friends were? All of the Jews of ill repute. Other tax collectors, other sinners, prostitutes, thieves, undesirables, outcasts, everyone that polite society despised, and Jesus goes to a feast with all of these people and sits down and eats with them, and this was a tremendously huge deal. Table fellowship, eating with others, was not just a matter of function, like we have to eat, so let's sit down and eat. It was a way of welcoming others a way of expressing some kind of relationship or friendship or even kinship with others this is what put the pharisees into such a panic the pharisees in verse 11 saw this and they said to his disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners this is later what jesus is accused of as a derogatory thing. He's a friend of sinners. He's someone who eats with them. He fellowships with them around the table. Why is he doing this? The Pharisees said. The Pharisees, I think, easily get a bad rap. We can, we can fail to empathize with them, but we must remember the Pharisees are the ones who took most seriously following and obeying God's law. They took it very, very seriously. They were the, they were the experts. In acting religiously of their day. They were ones we would want to be around and want to know. All throughout Israel's history, they saw that separation from wickedness was so important, and they put this as a as a center of their religious life, maintaining ritual purity, maintaining cleanliness. And they object that Jesus, by fellowshipping with sinners and tax collectors. Around this table. Is being unclean. He ought not to do it. Is their objection fair? If Jesus is not able to somehow deal. With the uncleanness of these people. Then I would say it is. A good Jew of Jesus day. Would not associate with these people. But the Pharisees. Fundamentally misunderstand. Both who Jesus is. And what his mission is about. And Jesus corrects them. He says. In verse 12. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. This is a common proverb of the day. You want to find the doctor. Look, at this, look for the sick people. Right? It's common sense. That those Who are well are not the ones that the doctor spends time with. But it's those who are sick. So Jesus acknowledges that the tax collectors and sinners do in fact need a physician. They need spiritual healing. And Jesus is here to do that. And so he says. Those are the people he will be with. Then he tells the Pharisees. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. This is an admonition to them. He's pushing back and using rabbinical phrases. Go and learn what this means would be something that a rabbi would tell his student. And Jesus is treating these high learned men as students and telling them they don't understand the very law they claim to keep. And he points them to Hosea 6, the very text we read for our call to confession today. Again, the problem was Israel maintaining the forms of the law, but abandoning the intent of the law. They were bent on sacrifice and making sure all of that was rightly ordered. And yet they were failing to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. They were missing the intent of the law. And their repentance and devotion were shallow. And outward only and now jesus is implying that this is the very same problem faced by the pharisees we know as we go through the stories of the gospel that this is indeed the problem faced by the pharisees right they're accused by jesus of tithing mint and cumin and neglecting the weightier matters of the law we see a great example of this in the story of the good samaritan when one of the pharisees comes and is trying to justify himself and says who is my neighbor trying to get at, I want to keep the letter of the law, but I can neglect the heart of the law. And yet Jesus is saying what pleases God is not just keeping the letter, but keeping the heart of the law. Mercy and not merely sacrifice. Jesus is not against sacrifice. At this point, he's not calling them to stop making sacrifices in the temple. He is calling them, however, to fulfill the heart of the law. This is what he came to do. He gives this mission statement. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. To show mercy to those who are in need. To show mercy to sinners. This doesn't imply that the Pharisees are righteous and don't need the Messiah. Rather, this is Jesus saying, the ones I came for are the ones who recognize that they need me. And the Pharisees were saying, we are the ones that are righteous We are the ones you ought to spend time with. And Jesus says, my mission is towards those who know they need me, not those who think they deserve me. Jesus then calls sinners into his band of followers, and he fellowships at table with them. And this is tremendously radical. This is way outside of the norm. How can he do this without violating laws of cleanliness? It's because, as we've already seen, he himself... Has authority to forgive. He has authority to make clean. And he has authority to forgive. And he uses that authority to gather around him a table of once sinners. But now forgiven sinners. Just as he did with the paralytic. I believe Jesus in calling Matthew was not calling him to come follow me and persist in tax collecting and extorting your fellow Jews and being corrupt. But he said, follow me. And Matthew left everything, which was a very luxurious career. In many ways, of all the disciples, Matthew probably lost the most. And yet he left behind the deepest depravity. And Jesus, calling him to himself, I'm sure at some point spoke the words, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And now around this table is gathered, not sinners, but the forgiven. We see from this, and I think ought to learn, that those of us who are tempted to think that we are righteous or that Jesus favors us because somehow we do the right thing. we can see this especially if things don't go our way. And we say, well, Jesus, I've been doing the right thing. Why aren't things going my way? Or Jesus, why did you show favor to someone else and not me when I'm clearly more holy than them? That's what the Pharisees were tempted to think like, and that's what we ought not think like. We ought to be humbled when we see that Jesus is drawn not to the righteous, but to sinners. This is tremendous encouragement for those of us who feel the sense That we are deep sinners and that we have no right to expect Jesus to be drawn to us. The fact is that Jesus does not despise you because of your sin. Jesus is drawn to you to forgive you and to draw you into fellowship. Dan Ortland, in Gentle and Lowly puts it this way. He says, time and time again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving, who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He is, by his enemy's testimony, the friend of sinners. One of the greatest ways that he can show this reality is by eating with sinners and tax collectors. Table fellowship is one of the greatest pictures Of welcome that we receive from our Lord. We receive the promise that we will one day feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We receive the promise that we can be welcomed at the table as we celebrate communion. We receive the promise that we belong because Jesus fellowships with us. This is one of the greatest pictures of welcome that we can then in imitation of our Savior extend to others. Welcoming them to our table. Whether that be our literal table, as in a table in a home, or whether that be metaphorically to fellowship with us in other ways. As we welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed us, we portray that reality that Jesus is able to forgive sins, and he does. And then he calls sinners to fellowship with him and with one another. The last way Jesus reshapes reality. Verses 14-14. To 17. Jesus reshapes reality by feasting with his bride. There's no radical action listed in verse 14. Notice when we read verse 14, the disciples of John come to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? There's a problem that they're bringing to him. It's not describing the actions that have done, but notice it's about fasting, which is about eating which we've already been talking about because Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, right? So there's a problem here that's brought about. No longer the, fo- the, the focus is no longer on who he's eating with, but the focus is on the fact that he's eating. Jesus is having a feast, a celebration with these sinners and tax collectors, and his disciples regularly feasted when they could. Sometimes they didn't have enough to eat, They certainly went without food at times. But when they had food, they feasted. They didn't fast like the Pharisees fasted. The disciples of John come and confront him. These disciples are disciples of John the Baptist. And what do we know about John the Baptist, right? He was in the desert. He was wearing camel hair. He ate locusts and honey. He was radical and what we might call aesthetic. He was someone who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And so he refrained from certain pleasures in this life. To increase his hunger for the pleasures to come as God's kingdom came, right? That's what fasting essentially is. It's mourning over sin and anticipating God doing something about it. And so John had taught his disciples to do this. And these disciples come and say, why why aren't your disciples fasting? The Pharisees regularly fast. This is why Jesus addressed it in Matthew 6, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't be like the hypocrites, Who fast and look gloomy in the streets. This was a regular practice. There was required fasts. But there was also extra fasts. And the Pharisees did this. Disciples of John did this. The scribes did this. This was what religious behavior looked like. And the disciples of John are puzzled. Why do your disciples not fast? They don't understand the massive shift that has taken place. Jesus responds by using the analogy of a wedding. He says in verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Why does he use this analogy? One reason is that for a Jew, a wedding was a week-long festive occasion, full of joy, where it would have been inappropriate to fast. They would have connected with this analogy on just a a common experience level. But this analogy goes deeper. Because all through the Old Testament, one of the ways that Yahweh is described, one of the ways that God is described is as the bridegroom of his people, as the husband of his people, as the groom of his people, the one who is going to marry his bride. And Israel is talked about as The bride of Yahweh. We know from the New Testament. That this image is applied to the church under Christ. That Jew and Gentile gathered together under the banner of Christ. Is now the bride. And that Jesus himself is the bridegroom. Jesus is saying that the reason his disciples do not fast. Is because he is the bridegroom. And they are here at A feast celebrating his wedding. On this side of the cross. All of the work that he is going to do. Has not happened yet. And there is a greater feast yet to come. But this is an anticipatory feast. As they sit around. Forgiven sinners. Sharing a table. Jesus has called them. And transformed them. Into his bride. And so as Jesus sits at the table with all of these Ill, people of ill repute from the society, all the people that the religious in the society would reject, he has created for himself now a new people, a new bride. And he's feasting with his bride. All of those who have turned from their sin and their terrible ways and trusted in Jesus and the forgiveness that he has authority to bring are now part of this feast. Jesus says, there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away. He's clearly alluding to his death here. And he says, then the disciples will fast and it will be appropriate. But that time is not yet. And the disciples of John are puzzled by this. And Jesus gives them two analogies to talk about the newness of what is happening here. In verse 16, he says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. This is the idea of taking a piece of clothing that's older, that has gone through the wash, that has shrunk down, and putting a brand new piece of cloth on it that hasn't had time to shrink. When it gets washed and then dries, the cloth will shrink and tear away from the patch. Won't work. And then he says, in another analogy, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. As brand new wine was made and put into wineskins, it still was fermenting and off-gassing and expanding. And if the wineskin made out of animal skin was brittle and old, there was no room for it to expand, and so it would pop and spill out the wine everywhere. Jesus says it doesn't work. The new is incompatible in some fundamental ways with the old, in other words. Jesus is saying that in coming, he has brought about a new reality that is in fundamental ways different and incompatible with the old reality. And yet it's not entirely distinct. Notice Jesus appeals to Hosea 6. He said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. But in fulfilling it, things cannot stay merely the same. It's not merely putting a new patch on an old garment. It's bringing something entirely new, fundamentally changing all of reality. I think this captures what we must recognize and see Happening in Jesus coming in Jesus life, death and resurrection. He has brought about a completely different reality. The question I think for us is do we live as if there is a new reality? It's easy for us to approach knowing Jesus as merely putting old cloth or new cloth on an old clothing or putting new wine in old wineskins. In other words, it's easy for us to take Jesus as someone who forgives us, who cleanses us, who makes us right, who eases our guilt, who stamps our passport into heaven, but then has no further impact until he returns. This is common in the Christian life. To live as if Jesus coming hasn't instituted an entirely different new reality. It's easy to do. Because our natural bent is to just shift back into what we see and know and seems familiar. We can tell this is happening if the fact that you know Jesus and Jesus has forgiven your sins and has welcomed you into fellowship with him him, and has called you to feast and celebration. And if that makes relatively little difference in your life. If that doesn't matter or doesn't make an impact... Then I think it's right to ask if we're really following him. All reality flows from Jesus. And so, this new reality that he has created in bringing the kingdom of heaven drastically changes how we live and how we experience life. It can't help but change it. The problem isn't that it doesn't change anything, the problem, I think, for us is that we forget this reality. We don't live according to this reality. We struggle to absorb this reality into our bones. And so we just live as if it didn't happen. Functionally. I think one example we see in this text is Jesus saying the presence of him as the bridegroom means that his disciples feast. The presence of him as the bridegroom dictates how his disciples experience feasting or fasting, how they think about time and they think about food and they think about fellowship with one another. His presence dictates reality and reshapes reality. If our perception of reality is shaped by this reality that Jesus creates, things will be different for us. He will affect our time. This is one of the reasons why we exist on a six plus one pattern. Why we spend Sundays gathered together as his people, hearing the truth, hearing what's real, being reminded of what's real. The reality that we live in America affects our calendars because we celebrate the 4th of July. How does the reality of belonging to Christ affect our calendars? How does the reality of belonging to Christ affect how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. How does it change who we are closest to? The reality that Jesus has brought about means you are closer to every single person that belongs to Christ, no matter how little you have in common, than even your own blood relatives. And yet we easily don't live like this, we easily forget this. There's a, there's a pull towards what is earthly that causes us to forget. So friends, I want to exhort us to remember. I want us to think lastly about what Jesus was doing in this text. Jesus was reshaping reality, but he was reshaping reality really that had already been reshaped by his incarnation. Had already been reshaped by the father instituting the plan to call a people to himself to rescue his people. So Jesus, as he was doing these things, is both bringing about a new reality. And he's just walking in the reality that had already been brought about. Jesus himself is bringing the kingdom of heaven near. And he himself is just walking as the first citizen of the kingdom of heaven. As he lives out this reality, that brings him into conflict with the old kingdom. It brings him into conflict and eventually leads to his crucifixion. But in God's perfect plan, it's this very crucifixion of the Son of God that enables this new reality. It's this very crucifixion that changes everything and has massive shockwaves all through what we would say life is like. And all of these shockwaves lead to us experiencing in our day and age that new reality of being forgiven, of being brought near into fellowship, of being able to feast with anticipatory joy, knowing that one day we will feast with Christ in heaven. So friends, let us live in light of that reality. Let's pray and ask God's help to do that. Father, I pray that you would sink these truths down deep into our bones. No amount of clinging to this cognitively is going to sustain us through this next week. God, we easily forget. I pray that you would help us By your Spirit, that you would take your Spirit and prompt us and remind us throughout this next week of what is real, that we really are forgiven and that we would walk in that forgiveness and forgive others as we have been forgiven. I pray that you would remind us that we have been called into fellowship and that that would be a delight and a joy, and that you would remind us that we have a great feast to look forward to. And that we would feast in anticipation. Thank you God for the way your spirit works in us. That it does not depend on us. But it depends wholly on you. And you have proven in Christ Jesus definitively. That you are willing and able to help. So would you help us now. To walk in reality as we come to your table. We pray. Amen.